Hello, this is Victoria Partridge, host of Letters from the Lunchroom. I wanted to stop by before this episode began and let you know that unfortunately, there were some audio issues that occurred during the reporting process. However, the conversation that you are about to hear is incredibly valuable, and we do not feel that the audio issues take away from that. So please enjoy this episode of CEO Convos. Hello and welcome to CEO Convos. I am Melissa Martin, the President and CEO of Communities and Schools of Mid-America, and I am absolutely delighted today to be joined by Carol Lewis, who is the President and CEO of Communities and Schools of Georgia. Carol and I are friends and have been for quite a while, and we are also peer executives in the same National Communities and Schools Network. Uh, we've had many a discussion about all kinds of things, <laughs> but today I am going to welcome Carol and ask her to specifically discuss some of the challenges of leadership. In one of our recent conversations, I referred to Shakespeare's quote, heavy is the head that wears the crown, and we had both a, a laugh and perhaps a sob or two over that. And so Carol, first of all, welcome. Thank you for being here. Thank you for and having me. You bet. How would you describe that dynamic to the young or emerging leader who is primarily focused on the perks, the excitement and the benefits and opportunities of leadership? Um, again, thank you again for, <laughs> for uh, allowing me to share this conversation. Because when I think about the heaviest the head uh, that wears the crown, I, you know, <laughs> I felt my, my neck kind of droop a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, I know exactly what that feels like. I just, I felt it physically. Uh, <laughs> it, sometimes we are so focused on being a leader. We don't think about all the things that it entails. It is um, the responsibilities. You're responsible not only for your organization's well-being, the reputation of the organization, your personal reputation, um, and then you also have to think about the people that are depending on you. It's your staff, the funders who have entrusted you with, with money that you manage that money well. You think about this, and for us students that we serve, because for me, that's always, you know, first thing and foremost. But I think you really have to understand and think about why did I take on this mantle of leadership? Because if all you took it on for was the perks, you're going to be sorely disappointed. Because I won't say it's always challenging, but it is challenging. And it is sometimes isolating and lonely and, um, and thankless. So that is true. <laughs> you have to get ready to take on all of that and not take it. You have to take it on, but not take it on as um, 
almost personally. I mean, sometimes you can't help it because it does get personal. But it is, um, and you have to be able to step away from it and look at the what is the growth opportunity? What can I learn from this situation? Where can I move forward? Because the goal is always to keep moving forward. Yeah, I, I understand. You know, when I, uh, in my first position um, as CEO, I, when I started, I was the only person in the office and the organization grew and that was quite exciting. Mm -hmm. And, you know, when we got to the place where we had eight staff members, it suddenly hit me that the, the well-being of eight families was in a significant degree upon my shoulders because if I didn't make this organization work, mom or dad was going to lose their job. And I was unprepared for that sense of responsibility. I, um, I quite honestly, I went into therapy. (laughs) It was, (laughs) you know, to use the vernacular, it was eating my lunch. (laughs) And um, I had to get some help with my perspective. And I went through about a year to a year and a half where, you know, I stayed in my, stayed in my position, continued the work, but where I really had to work through the enormity of that sense. And so I, over the space of a year or a year and a half, um, I really had to work through this overpowering sense of responsibility. And I almost left the field. Uh, In fact, I had even notified our national office that I intended to leave. However, uh, my, my sense of purpose, uh, my sense of uh, why I was doing this work prevailed, and I was able to work through that. And, you know, thank goodness, because now there are 80 plus staff members. And uh, had I not worked through that then, I certainly would not be up for it today. Carol, you have previously mentioned in some of our conversations the intersectionality of so many of the issues that are facing our country and that leaders, whether younger or seasoned, have to face. And so at your stage of leadership, what kind of approach do you take to addressing or leading in those situations or issues that are so interwoven? One of the things that um, I always find helpful for me is um, to take a step back. Take a step back from any situation and um, really assess my own personal feelings about it. Uh, Because I think you have to be very much in touch with how you feel about whatever's going on, whether it's social justice, um, if we're, you know, we just gone, we have gone through, you know, a pandemic that's amplified every challenge that we've ever had in, mm-hmm. in, in, um, in leadership. And, but you have to, whatever the situation is, you have to, you have to step back. You have to really take stock of how you feel about it and how you think about it. Uh, my style of leadership has always been more participatory getting 
information from many different sources and shared information. There's no one way to think about something, but you have to think about things as a collective. Um, understanding that every decision you make may change an entire ecosystem. It may change the um, funding. It will. It may change um, how your organization is, is viewed. It may um, change how your staff is looking at you and and um, even changing that that uh, uh, now I say authority you have authority by your position but you also have authority authority that's granted to you by by um, uh, uh, by, by the the people that you lead mm-hmm. and so you have to really really uh, understand how you feel about something how where your your anger if you're and you know, I, we've gone through a year that I have been probably the most vulnerable I have ever been as a leader and more open about my feelings as a leader because there was no way for me to check it at the door. Mm-hmm. Absolutely no way. So you had to be um, and be authentic in in and honest in your feelings when you're and I'm particularly just the incident of, you know, we all sat and watched a man die on screen mm-hmm. um, and I think even with having to deal with some of the challenges with the pandemic that to me was one where it brought me to tears in the middle of a, a staff meeting mm-hmm. with and to be honest about what I was feeling in that moment um, but that also gave the staff a chance to open up and have a conversation that they were all holding in. You could, you could feel the tension. You could feel that level of stress. Um, and not everybody felt the same way and, and to give them space and say, that's okay. And that's what I think is when your challenge is to give the space that is okay. It's okay to, to not have the same opinion. It's okay um, to have feelings about, things in a certain way, but then you also need to have an avenue and an, and an outlet for expressing those feelings. And then you got to get back to the work. Now, how are we going to express that in a day to day? How are we going to change um, how we're dealing with it? Because we deal with children. You got kids who are having to deal with that, those same emotions. Um, Do I think therapy is a great idea? Absolutely, because I had to seek it this year because (laughs) (laughs) there had to be outlets for this. I mean, there was such anger that I didn't realize that I was holding in. Mm -hmm. And uh, and then also such just such a level of profound grief. uh, Because, you know, we started this year as a family, our family with a, I mean, a tragic loss. And then it was loss on top of loss on top of loss. And so um, if I'm feeling that way with the tools and skills and things that, that I have to my disposal, what are our children having to manage when they don't have those same things? Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. yeah. You know, when you talk about that authenticity with staff, uh, especially in a time that is loaded with emotion uh, that runs the gamut, anger, fear, grief, despair, rage, uh, countless other words that, that could be used there. When you have that kind of authenticity with staff, 
how do you move from those very real moments back into now it's time to return to work? And how do you care for the staff people who, just like the, the many of the kids and families that our respective organizations serve, how do you care for your staff people in that kind of crisis? Well, we do a couple of things because, you know, it's one, we, we now we, we connect every single week. I have had individual conversations. I will pick up the phone when I see someone who is either not talking or if they're expressing something just this way out, <laughs> just <laughs> like, okay, you, okay, let's, let's sit there. We need to process this differently. But you have to give people one, the space to know it's okay to express whatever that, that challenge is. And we also provide um, for our staff and said, like, you may not want to talk to me about, about Mm -hmm. whatever you're feeling, but here's a resource for you um, to have a conversation and, uh, and to be able to pull up those resources for people and have them readily available. You know, I think we all have to be counselors a, a bit, um, that if we've done nothing else, it's then is saying I have to take care of my managers, but I had to you know carve out time to make sure they were they were fine. Yeah, I understand um, that. Yeah, and then you know frontline staff are seeing all all kinds of things, so you have to also keep continuously check in with them. Um, celebrate the small wins. Celebrate we celebrate a lot of things, and and you know compliment when you see small things and someone's doing a job really well. Um, so those are, are, are challenges that I think for me, it's, it's helped me grow as a, <clears throat> a grow as a manager, um, because I was very focused on the work because, you know, there's always so much stuff to be done <laughs> and it's <Yes>. never ending. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> I do but, know that. But then it's, it shift priorities. Take care of your people first. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, take care of your people first and then the work will follow, you know, it'll follow. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I will say, again, I think that's really true for most of us in the social sector. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I was thinking again about how, you know, we've both mentioned on here that we have each sought therapy <laughs> at times to uh, help us work through some of the challenges of leadership. And I don't know if you recall this, but a few years ago, uh, you and I had the chance to be in a small group conversation with Ann Williams, ISM CEO of the Harlem Children's Zone. And when she was asked how she managed to stay <laughs> on top of her very busy, demanding life, she replied, Jesus yoga and gray goose and then gave a quick description of what she meant by each uh, that is really stuck with me over the years and and i i think any leader that does not have some specific go-tos in order to maintain or perhaps regain their sanity uh is really putting themselves at risk so what what do you do what are your things aside from the therapy you have sought um i think for me it's for me it's family first Mm is for me is that because um 
my family is the, uh, and I guess if I had to do three things, it would be my family, my faith, and growth. And my family, because I am unconditionally accepted by them. I am nurtured. I am hugged in a way um, that, um, you know, I can be my silly, crazy self or I can be sulky. And, well, usually I'm very rarely sulky. And But it's um, there's something about that just unconditional acceptance and unconditional love of that family. And I come from a huge family. It was eight of us. And my faith has actually, I guess, evolved because I was, you know, my parents put us in Sunday school, you know, all of these great things. But what I've learned over over just growing is that it's more important the relationship that you have with whatever God you choose to serve is personal. And it is one that you have to create and uh, develop, maybe not say create, but you develop Um over time and you have to be um, willing to give it time and patience and attention and um, and I think that sometimes gives you the lens in which you see the world because um, it's easy to be you know just oh my gosh everything's horrible and there's no hope when I said there's always hope if you got another breath there's always hope but um, when I say growth I don't necessarily think you know because I've been always you know I think you're always learning but for me I am a, uh, a plant person there is something just magical about flowers and plants and you'll hear say what are you doing I'm going to dig in the dirt and I'm a happy camper <laughs> <laughs> I'll dig in a pot out in the yard it doesn't matter I I'm digging in the dirt whether it, you know and most things grow but I just enjoy the just the process uh, well, as a as a fellow gardener, I completely understand that. And uh, I will say that this year I have put in a new vegetable garden. Mm-hmm. My aunt says is closer to a truck garden than a home <laughs> vegetable garden. But uh, I do understand. I love to grow flowers and vegetables and herbs and pretty much anything that lives in the dirt. So, yes. you know, Acknowledging the burdens that leadership can carry, how are you looking at the future? Oh boy, I um, I think when you you know you think about leadership as a journey, and you know you kind of occasionally kind of look back and say, hmm, what could I have done differently? What could I have done a little bit better? And then so when I look at the future, it's may either maybe correcting or redirecting or course correcting. But what I look forward to is, um, and this is probably going to sound crazy to other people. I always look for people who can replace me. I'm always looking for that next, um, I, I guess next source of brilliance in both mm-hmm. the people that I work with, because I think if you can help build that, um, I think you build a more stable and stronger structured organization, but you also acknowledge that, you know, there's a season and a reason that you're <laughs> in this space mm-hmm. and that if you don't want what you've built to fail, you need to always look for who's coming next and try to find um, whether that's, you know, 
revamping your board of directors to make sure you have the right leadership, building opportunities for growth within your staff. You um, also look at funding to make sure things are stable and that they have access to resources. And then you also look at structures. You know, is this a structure that's going to last the test of time? So when I look toward the future, it is how stable and relevant are we going to be? And do I have the right people in the right places to move forward? Um, because I am looking forward to retirement. <laughs> you know, in, in the next, and I never thought this, you know, my goodness. Uh, you know, we've been around for a long time. Oh, I've been around for a really long time. And it's... Uh, for yourself, Carol. No. <laughs> I just, I, I changed it. I am, I've been around for a long time. But... Uh, you know, I think there, there are times and there are, because um, uh, I always ask myself, is this, am I still the right person? Uh, uh-huh. Am I still the right person? Uh-huh. And um, and when that answer is uh, no, and sometimes that answer is no, <laughs> is no <laughs> then it's, you know, it's time to, I, you know, yeah. find that big old giant truck garden <laughs> out there in <Yeah>. the back. hundred <laughs> percent. That's a, that is a. I think a very positive and productive way to to look at the future. And and honestly, in terms of surrounding yourself with people that have that brilliance that you were talking about, mm-hmm. I try very hard all the time, especially in my work, to surround myself with people who I consider to be smarter than me, more educated. Mm-hmm than me more more everything mm-hmm. because then i i know we're going to be okay yeah i uh, i have no fear of being outshined by anybody around me i want those kind of people around me yeah i agree uh, it is just life is better and i i love to surround myself with with people I consider to be aspirational. I want to be like them when I grow up. <laughs> you know, that person has a quality that I aspire to uh, in my own behavior or, you know, thought. So I, I love the way that you look at that. Okay. So Carol, before we close today, I would like to go back to something that we touched on earlier in our conversation, and that is leadership uh, during the very challenging times of racial justice and the lack thereof that our country has experienced over the last year. And I know that you discussed having a a meeting with staff during which you all had the opportunity to simply authentically share your feelings and perspective. And we had a similar um, occurrence here in our organization, but, you know, I wonder you as a, as a black leader, me as a white leader, how we each approached it and was were there more similarities than differences? Were there more differences than similarities? So organizationally and, and individually for you as a black leader, how did you really approach it from, you know, through that lens? Well, as I said, you have to get in touch with your own feelings 
about the situation. Because, and I, I don't say I was surprised that not everyone saw the the challenges the same way. Um, that was for me. It's not surprising. I do understand that people think differently. They see the world through different lenses. Um, you know, even as much as I love you, <laughs> I'm probably more conservative than you are. <laughs> you, <laughs> are you are. <laughs> Believe it or not, <laughs> and it's um, and coming from from that perspective, which is you know, and and staff goes the gamut. But what I had to have to step back because to to witness it was witnessing that that man's death, um, in re in, in what I, I always say, you know, real time. This this is not something that. I read about in a book. This is something I witnessed with my own eyes. What I didn't, I didn't know him, but I could see my brother. I could see my son. I could see my uncle. I could see, you know, the men in my life that I care about and love could be in that same position. Um, it came back to me that, you know, just like, oh my God, I've had to have that conversation that was my greatest fear in reality. You know, I was seeing my greatest fear for my child, you know, or my children. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's what, for me, was I was faced with. Mm-hmm. Um, that, uh, you know, and I, and I was also faced with, this is the fear my parents have had for us. And they have to live with. You know, I'm, you know, as people, you know, I'm living in the South, I'm living in a red state, you know, we're not as progressive as, as much of the country. And, uh, you know, prior to that, you've seen tensions elevate or escalate sometimes for just because um, um, people feel the way they feel, and they think that they can express those without um, any filter. And I've experienced, probably experienced that probably more than I have since schools integrated when I was, you know, in seventh grade, mm-hmm. um, which is another, you know, I would say trauma that bubbles up as, as well mm-hmm. that you don't really uh, deal with. And then you had um, the other challenge is that you also cannot um, be as open about it in public. Because, yeah, I was ready to get my sign, get out in the street. I was ready to march. I was angry. I wanted to have, but I don't have that outlet for it because, oh, by the way, I have to go to the state legislature and try to keep money flowing for, for mm-hmm. everybody in the organization. Mm-hmm. Oh, by the way, I have people who I have to deal with on a day-to-day that don't feel that same way. So um, it is it is sometimes tamping down how you feel personally and then looking at, how do we move forward collectively, not necessarily, but addressing the challenges still, but allowing people to be, to give them growth opportunities. Yeah. Yeah. Not that I'm going to make you feel the way I feel. I What I want you to understand that even though you don't feel the same, you need to have enough empathy to know that just because this hadn't affected you directly, it still can happen. And one of the ways I, I think about it is, I said, think about if you could put the face of the person you love the most, black or white, 
in that same position, how would you feel? Mm -hmm. And, you know, I just said, if you could do that, then I think there's hope. But if you can, you know, if your first thing is to be defensive and, oh, no, that could never happen. And, oh, no, if just comply. Okay, what's well, complying? That happens. We're unarmed. And we also had another incident here in Georgia, a young man who was around my son's age, which really just added, you know, the, you talk about the heaping on or the more weight on the shoulders, who was running. We had vigilantes who took his life. Uh, and, you know, my child jogs, my youngest son. He's a runner. I said, you know, there by the grace of God, that could have been him. And so you, yeah, that's what took me to therapy. <laughs> it's, it's, yeah. It was uh, having to deal with that. Yeah. Um, I understand as much as I can in my, but I, I, I feel like for those of us who are white, there is, you know, I understand is wholly inadequate and often untrue. And yet, I think it is a shorthand at times for I empathize. I can't ever actually understand. Um, but I, I can empathize. And, you know, when, when the murder of George Floyd happened, uh, it was, it, it sent a shock through our organization the same way it sent a shock through much of the country. And I will tell you, I was, as a white leader, felt very unequal to the challenge. And yet I knew I had to answer the call of our staff to say and do something and to have our organization do something about racial equity in the face of all of this. And so even though I, as I said, felt very unequal and I felt like I was going to mess it up nine ways to Sunday, um, I just had to get with staff and say, okay, I'm going to mess up and uh, you might mess up <laughs> and we might miscommunicate and we may accidentally say some things that hurt each other, but we've got to embark as an organization on, an, on a, a very intentional uh, racial justice equity-focused path forward. And so we, we implemented uh, some, some things, <laughs> you know, an equity team that is primarily staff members of color. Uh, we actually did make a statement about how the continued uh, racial and ethnic violence against people like George Floyd and so many others has to stop and we stand against it and we stand with those who who call for equity and you know i i will say as as a white leader i the whole process intimidated me then and it intimidates me now and you know even in our equity work that we're doing i'm not leading it 
I am supporting it hugely. I am letting everyone know in no uncertain terms, this has the CEO's full investment. Um, but it is our members of color uh, of our of our staff who who are leading and telling, helping us understand the things we need to do, whether it's in hiring practices, whether it is in how we, you know, how we supervise, how we um, assess performance, you name it, how we, you know, take it on to the service level, how we are interacting with uh, families or kids who are not the same race or ethnicity. And so it is, as I said at the beginning of it, this is likely to be the hardest work we will ever do. Uh, and it's also the most necessary work we can do. You know, our board supported our statement uh and you know, in fact, they they auth- authored it, uh, put their names to it collectively, and uh, so I I counted myself fortunate to be surrounded uh, by people. Another instance who understood more than I do, who know more than I do, who uh, don't have a responsibility to teach me, but who have been very gracious in helping me understand what it is like to live with the lens of race and ethnicity always present. Uh, it, has, it has been a, a powerful and sobering time and one that, uh, if we do it right, is not going to end. It's a, you know, it is not something that we will, at the end of fiscal 22, be able to dust our hands and say, well, that's done. What next? Uh, mm-hmm. This work that is going to take a commitment and a, a long-term commitment. And also, as you say, a lot of careful, uh, a lot of, careful management and, and, and I and I'm happy to hear that um, you let um, your your team lead this work I think we've done something similar the challenge for me was um, making sure that I did not resent the lack of understanding mm-hmm. Um because it was, you know, it was like all these other people who have gone on before until people saw it in their faces that my voice necessarily, and I'll say my voice, a collective voice was not credible until you couldn't deny what you were seeing. So moving beyond that, but also not vilifying our systems to the point that, that we won't allow them to function, but we need to allow uh, for critical input on correction. And that's, you know, whether that's policing, education, it's um, 
you know, our, you know, governing systems, um, because what I fear in, in all of this, and, and, uh, you know, we work really hard not to have a them and us, mm-hmm. uh, because then that no progress is made or that you move toward placating like, oh, well, you know, we, you know, we become maternalistic, you know, oh, poor little black kid. And, and mm-hmm. so it's, it's for me is making sure that we don't go down that road. We still hold that same level of accountability. We hold, um, um, uh, expectations higher now than we have before for everybody. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, um, you know, cause I grew up with, you know, it was, your address was no excuse. You're sent to school, <laughs> school to do well. You have to be better than best. You have to do, you know, twice as much to get half the recognition. Mm-hmm. So it's, um, it's a, it's an interesting. It's going to be an interesting journey when we think about equity. We think about, um, you know, I don't want us to get off. You're trying to name it to make uh-huh. sure that we don't do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, I was talking to another friend um, <clears throat> recently, and in his perspective, what is missing from a lot of current DEI work is reconciliation. He said he you know he said if you're going to give it a label let's call it DEIR <laughs> uh, diversity, equity, inclusion and reconciliation. You know, and in his case he's like, look, I'm I'm not interested in just flipping the system so that the oppressed becomes the oppressor. I I'm not looking to you know, do a, a a tit for tat. I'm looking for reconciliation. And, and in his view too, he said he felt like the spiritual aspects of the teachings of MLK, Martin Luther King Jr., that that is largely missing from our current conversations. And I thought that that was, an interesting uh, perspective and, and one I had not considered until our conversation. Um, you know, it's, it's not as simple as two wrongs don't make a right, but I, I do think we don't want to perpetuate a system of injustice, no matter who is in the seat of power. I think it is, um, I certainly, for me, my, my goals are all people living in equality and peace. Um, don't know if I'll see that in my lifetime, and I don't know that everybody is interested in the reconciliatory philosophy of MLK teachings, but, um, I certainly feel, I felt his sense of warning when he was sharing that thinking with me. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it is challenging and, and challenging for lack of a better word. 
mm-hmm. that um, you know, and I think what we have to also um, figure out how to get over our fear. Um, you know, we teach racism. Mm-hmm. We teach it by our actions. Um, we give permission for it by our inactions. So, um, you know, what does that look like for us? You know, we have, we've got people jumping out of, off of, you know, just jumping all over school boards right now, not want to teach critical race theory and couldn't tell you what it meant, what yeah. that means. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Or changing history that wouldn't be inclusive and they don't understand what, uh, you know, how their lives have been impacted by people uh, that are not included in history books. Yeah. And, um, so, I mean, it's a, it's a huge challenge and it is um, a multi-generational challenge because I don't also think, well, ooh, one president, ooh, one mm-hmm. um, is going to make that difference. And it's also a global challenge. I agree. I agree. It so, um, but the U.S. has its own um, flavor, <laughs> to say yeah. the least. We so have this- a- yeah, I think a, we have a, a unique position um, in global racism and mm-hmm. well, so does so does Europe, you know, in the colonize you know colonization. That's true. That's very true. Very true. Um, you know, even though I think they've made a bit more progress than we have, uh, but the other challenge in, in the, the same within the same challenge, and um, for me, it's also the challenges and. To democracy as a whole, um, because I think those two things for me almost go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. Because you cannot change and have freedoms if you destroy your democracy. You just des- destroy what holds it to be true, or allow it to be true and allow you to change and become um, our better selves. Yeah. I agree. Our better selves. That is such, such to me, the perfect phrase that, that is what we are seeking as, as individual women, as individual (laughs) leaders. It is what we are seeking in our work. Um, Better selves. Yeah. But you know, through through all of it, I have hope. Yeah, I do too. You know, I, because I think about if my parents can come through, you know, my great grandparents can come through slavery, Jim Crow, all of the cra- we have, we can do this too. Yes, we can. We can make progress. We can move forward because yes. it has been worse. It has. Yes, it has been worse. You are correct. So we can make it too. There is. There is our hope. Yes. Uh, there is our our word for the future. Our our look toward the future. There is always hope. So, Carol, I want to thank you for the time today. It has been wonderful to have you as a guest. I so appreciate your authenticity and your sharing of yourself uh, during this time. I know you as a tremendous leader, and I know you as a wonderful person, and I really appreciate you sharing some of that with our listeners. So thank you again for joining us. Oh, absolutely. And thank you so much for for your patience. (laughs) Uh, 
you know, and, and the conversation, I always appreciate the opportunity. Oh, thank you, Carol. And your friendship. And your friendship, most (laughs) of all. Absolutely. So for our listeners, I want to thank you again for joining us today. I hope that you were enlightened and that you gained food for thought and consideration. As always, we will have information about Carol Lewis and the work of CIS of Georgia posted on our website. Uh, Look forward to having you join us next time. And thank you for your time. And as always, you can find out more information at www.cismidamerica.org. Look forward to being with you again soon. Take care.